0: I think I'd like to start, really, more to reflect
1: a little bit about your personal history because, one, it's interesting, and, 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 but also, I think it has had a lot to impact on how you view the world and how you operate
0: in a, a professional world, right? It has. Thank you. Well, first of all, Peter, thank you for having me here um, today. It's quite an honor to be aside Pierre and, and some of the other speakers. Pierre is a good friend of mine. Uh, over the years, and um, uh, it's an honor to be here. So, uh, I hope that um, uh, what what I have to say will be informative and, and of interest to all of you. Um, so, my background. Um, well, first of all, you know, I was I was born in India and uh, immigrated to the U.S. when I was ten. And what I'm about to tell you will sound a bit cliche and maybe uh, a story that you've heard many times. But I assure you that um, each one of these stories has a lot of, uh, there, there's a lot of layers underneath it. Um, my, uh, um, my mother, my brother and my grandmother and immigrated in the mid 70s from India. So I was born in Mumbai, mm-hmm. lived there until the age of 10. And in October of 1976, we arrived uh, here at JFK. And uh, my mother literally had $12 to her name and uh, her brother, Sponsored us uh, to to come live with with him within, in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, so why did she do this? So my hope paradise, which is a, which is a desti- which is a destination that I'll get to later. Um, <laughs> you like what, the, you like the weather and well, the beaches of that everything quarters, and great sports teams <laughs> and you know, all the rest. <laughs> but um, you know, so my mom, and I'll tell you a little bit about my background because I do think that that's what forms some of the values pardon me, and who you are. And so, uh, my mom, uh, in India, it's very uncommon for uh, families to be separated, or a husband and wife to separate, and my mom divorced when I was very young. I was about two years old, so um, I never really met my father um, over all those years. I mean, to this day, he passed away, I understand, 20 years ago or so. But um, uh, why I tell you all this is that uh, my mother had a master's in English. So, when they separated, she's very determined. And she said, well, I'm going to make something of myself. And, um, and she got a master's in English. And she uh, grew, She then um, uh, moved up through a private all-girls school to be number two in the all-girls school in, uh, in Mumbai. Which is a very prestigious all-girls school, by the way. When we moved uh, to America, she gave all that up. So that my brother and I could have a better life, and a father figure with my uncle. Who uh, we lived with until the high school years were finished, and I learned a lot from both of them, my mother and my my uncle, about values. And, and with uh, with with my mother, uh, just sort of this steely grit, hard work, never give up, don't be a victim. Um, when she when we came to America, she couldn't teach because her degree was in um, uh, was, was from from India. And it would take too much time and too much money to really get a degree so she could teach. So she took two jobs. She was a bank teller during the day and uh, she worked at a convenience store at night. And she saved up enough money to buy a little donut and sandwich shop, um, which she ran by herself. It was a carry out place. And so uh, uh, I remember this summer very well. It was was my junior year in high school, between junior and senior year. I, I said to her, I said, why don't you go for the whole summer and I'll run the shop. And she said, well, She said, you know, I used to help her in the summertime. And she said, uh, so, well, it's a lot of responsibility. You know, you got to get up at 4 a.m., you're going to have to be there by 5 a.m., and then, you know, uh, and, and you can't leave until 2, 3 in the afternoon. You got to do this, you got to do that. And I said, well, of course, I'll take care of all that. I've watched what you do. And, and, uh, and yeah. then she showed you,
1: you, me... You, you, you've imposed these same rules on all the plant managers. right?
0: Ford and money, whatever, so forth. Well, I don't, have, I don't have to impose it. It comes from within, so it's kind of nice. But uh, but where I was going with this is that she showed me this book which had a basically an account of people who couldn't pay for the food yeah. until their paycheck came in. And so she said, well, there's certain people, I've got their names here. They won't be able to pay you but when they get their paycheck, they'll come give you the cash, right? And so I said to her, I said, well, you know, what happens if they don't pay? Like, do I just, like, not serve them? And she said, no, you never stop serving people. And she said, if they don't pay you, assume that they need that money more than we do. And, and so, this sort of giving to others when you don't have, thinking about others, it was, it was sort of built into us. When we were young, my brother and I, and my uncle, his sense of service, and Ken Munger knew my uncle very well, um, because my, un- my uncle <clears throat> eventually did all of the resin procurement for Um It's not why I'm in the business, uh, it's coincidental in a way. Uh, but I actually had to sit across the table from him uh, when I was running polyethylene back at CP camp. And we literally didn't talk for months, <laughs> because he said, I don't want there to be any sense of impropriety about you telling me things. Or, But whenever he did talk to me, he'd say, well, that Ken Munger's a great guy, you know. He would, really. And I'm not just saying it gratuitously. He loved you, Ken. So my uncle passed away in 14. But I've, I've been fortunate to have great people around me who taught, taught me values about what's important. And, uh, and, and I would humbly say that the value of service. And I think that when you get to a role like mine, if you don't think it's about service, for others, and then I think you've missed what the world is really about. Yeah. And that's and, what I try to do every day.
1: And also, I think a lot of it is, is what should your relationship with people be at the company, right? Because and, yeah. and, you've got to set the tone, right, uh, for people to follow.
0: Yeah. Well, I think if you know, on, on, on that, um, if you if you lead with your title and that's how you get things done, that's one way. Right. The other is leading to inspiration. And leading to credibility, I'd much rather prefer that. Yeah. But it's but it's a longer path, and you have to earn that part. Yeah. And I'm not sure you ever stop earning. It. Now, turning
1: a little bit to the, <coughs> from the business side, uh, you actually joined a really difficult time. It was in bankruptcy, so it wasn't like you said, "Oh, this is a great growth opportunity; and the company's doing well, and so forth." So, yeah. tell us. Tell me a little bit about that because you you have been at CPN, CPN for a whole twenty years. Twenty years, yeah. and but that part of it was a personal decision to. Right? Yeah. So tell us about you know when you joined and what it was like. So those were difficult times, right?
0: There were difficult times, and it was it was a it was a, uh, a gut wrenching decision to leave after twenty years. So I'm often asked this: Well, why did you do it? And of course today some would say, Well, geez, it turned out pretty great, you know. I'm not sure it was evident back then that that's how it was going to turn out. Um, back when I had, uh, I had just moved back from Singapore with Chevron Phillips, I was running Asia Pacific for them. Um, and, uh, and it was a series of four years that had every year a life change for, for me and my family. In '08 we moved to Singapore, '09 we moved back. Suddenly, it was very unexpected. In 10, I left after 20 years to join El bazell in bankruptcy and at the end of 10 we were moving to Europe to, uh, to go run Europe Asia international and so it was just a lot of change but at that time to tell you what I thought about and I've always thought about this in every job that I've been asked to do or have wanted to do I've always thought about two questions one is can I contribute and two is can I learn from what I'm about to do in that order. Because for me, what's important is giving before I take. Now, I have always thought about that contribution part. And when Jim called me about running the America's cracker and popcorn business, what I thought about was that I had run the individual businesses at CP Chem for a few years. I'd been in manufacturing, and I knew the business quite well. I knew Ryan Dell as a competitor, as a customer, to sell the same way. So I knew I could help, I knew I would learn. But you also knew, um, you knew Jim quite well, and I knew Jim quite well, oh, and uh was a big part, of it, right? which which was a big part of it, and and uh, there were definitely credits and debits in that uh, ledger <laughs> that I had to consider. Uh, but the net of it was was positive, I assure you, and I'll come to that in a second. But um, uh, but I, I knew I knew I could help. Yeah. There was risk. I knew I'd learn a lot. I didn't know what would come of uh, it, but but I was at I was at a point. In my life and my career, that if I ever was going to do something like this, this was the time. Yeah. And it took a bit of courage and support from my wife as well, because the comfortable thing would have been to just say no and uh, see how it played out at CP Chem. Um, so, which, which I think would have done which about well. Yeah. Presumably, could have yeah. could have been okay yeah. as well. Yeah. One yeah. never knows, right? right. But um, but but that's you reach forks in the road, and I've had a few forks in the road yeah. over the years, and you choose the fork, and then you never look back. You just look forward and you put your shoulder into it. So, when I joined, I recall talking with Jim about joining uh, Lionel bazell and Jim said, well, Bobby said, you know, uh, uh, the organization, we have to go through a lot of cost-cutting, and and um, uh, the two companies have come together, but the integration didn't really happen because the bankruptcy occurred very quickly after um, right. a- after they formed, right? So.
1: Um, it so it happened for some very sad reasons. It really wasn't because it wasn't, well, you know, you know, it, 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 a slightly different timing in my It was, di- it, exactly. Different the timing outcome, was, right.
0: was very difficult. Uh, it, it was a lot of leverage, and it was a lot of short-dated maturities. And so, that was the issue, right. was we just, you know, as you, as you all know, you were in the business back then, in 08, the, the world just stopped, and there was no velocity, there was no mm-hmm. cash flow, and there was no way to service debt. And so, the bankruptcy ended up being more of an American bankruptcy, a chapter 11 process the European assets were, were not subject to the check or process, actually. So, you know, when I joined, Jim um, uh, Jim was, Jim can be very charming when he wants to be, and he can be very uh, demanding when he wants to be. And, uh, you know, it's one of the, he has many, many strengths. And, uh, and I recall going through this discussion with him and thinking about, what do I do? You know, what if things don't go well? Uh, Jim has very high standards. Uh, I worked one step removed from him back at CPCAM but never reported to him directly. But uh, the way Jim works, and the way, the way I work, I get to know a lot of the organization. It's not that I just know my directs, you know. Um, so we have familiarity, we have confidence. And I have to tell you, for me, the sort of the tiebreaker or, or the thing that really tipped me over was Jim, because I believed in him. And I thought if I was going to join a company in this sort of condition, I'm betting on the leader, and I was betting on Jim, and to this day I would tell you that if Jim wasn't there, I'm not sure I would is—he is He's an ex- extremely driven, uh, very, very bright character um, um, who doesn't take no for an answer, and he's not one who, who ex- accepts losses. And he was, he was definitely uh,
1: the right CEO of what, what the problem was. And he did a great job of, you know, pulling the company back from the brink of financial and so forth. Uh, but it's interesting, though, because when you became CEO, uh, I think it was a different, you know, the outlook was different, and the needs are different. And actually, what's very unusual, I, I find that uh, two things. One is that um, it's not that common for CEOs to be good at two very different things. You know, there's some people who are good at cost-cutting, there's people who are growth. The people who are growth-oriented tend not to be good at cost-cutting. There's some people who are good at early stage, so are more mature. And there aren't that many CEOs who would be successful in more than one environment. Right? So you joined Line of Zell when they were really trying to retrench and so forth. But then you became CEO, and the picture was different. So that must have been a very interesting transition for you, right? Because you were on a different mode for all that time when Jim was you working with Jim to pull the company back, right?
0: Indeed, no, indeed, it was. Um, uh, in In the first five years, I've been with the company almost ten now. The first five years was very much about cost cutting, and I led the cost cutting in three of the five divisions. Um, when I went over to Europe, uh, Jim wasn't there with me. I mean, it was you know I had to. I was much more independent in, in the work that I did back then. And thankfully he gave me a lot of space to do it too, you know. Um, but it's, I, I recall back at the end of 14, when it was announced that it was December, you know, or mid-December of 14, that I would be the, would succeed Jim. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very daunting to follow somebody like Jim gallagher I mean, he is he's iconic. And, and uh, he is, he's so accomplished in everything he's done. Um, what, what could I possibly do that could be even more, or different, or how, do, how could I carry the company forward? So, I want to take you back to that time and tell you a little bit about what the state of the industry was and the state of the company was. So, uh, 14 we had in 2014, we had ethylene margins of 50 cents. Polyethylene was starting to do well. The company was reaching record profitability. Oil prices, were very high. Um, Wall Street loved the company for what we had done, for what we had accomplished in terms of the cost cutting, the amount of cash flow. We were buying back ten percent of our stock every year, paying a, a progressive and stronger and stronger dividend. So a great capital return story. Don't screw it up, Bob. <laughs> um, um, we're going to give you this is just you Well, that's, that's that how 20%. I felt. That's how I felt. You know, it was like, look. Uh, you're playing with a huge lead, and I know you're going to want to put your mark on this, but things are going pretty well. And, you know, if you're a protege of Jim, just keep doing what he did. But, you know, I realized, and and I remember I I um, I, I wrote my speech for when I was in Houston for the town hall on the day that my appointment was announced, and I wrote it myself. And one of the things I wrote in there, one of the sort of needles I had to thread, was I wanted to be ultra, ultra respectful to Jim about what we had done together and uh, his leadership. But at the same time, I wanted to land the message to our employees that it was not just gonna be the same as what we had been doing. Culturally, we had to evolve, and and from a strategy perspective, we had to evolve. But how do I do that with Jim in the audience and show him the most respect that I could, which is what I wanted to do? sincerity, not just because it's the thing to do. So the way I did it was I said um, in the speech, I said often what happens in these kind of transitions is we use this sort of analogy of filling one's shoes and the successor has to fill their predecessor's shoes. And I, I said, I'm here to tell you that those shoes can't be filled. Sports teams retire jerseys, we're going to retire Jim's shoes. And I had many points I wanted to make out of that that were very subtle. One was, I'm not trying to be Jim. I'm my own man, and I'm not trying to just be him. And, to your point, there are chapters of a company's story. That was one chapter that's about to close, and now we're going to have to go into the next chapter. So, I, I go to my first meeting at Fidelity. And it was in March uh, with our with our uh, very seasoned HR person at the time, and uh, you know he, he's like Bob, you know, just you know stick to all the things you did in Europe and all the things that you know cost cutting, and and so you know I've, I've 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 always been one to speak my mind and I take a bit of risk, and so one of the PMs said, okay, so what's next? Mm-hmm. Which is not the first time I've heard that phrase in those 90 days. And so I looked at this guy and I said, well look, I said, we've run a lot out of these assets. And I'm not telling you that we can't bring more out, but likely there's not a step change here, in terms of more cost cutting or sweat the assets more. We'll incrementally be able to do things, but now it's really about how do we build a great company for many decades. We fixed it, now it's how do we build a great company. And I said, we're going to have to think about reinvesting back in the company. And I uttered the G word, growth, Oof. the air came out of the room, you know. Uh, Jim had just gotten the green jacket from Fidelity, because, you know, they have a green jacket literally. And they adorned him with the green jacket, um, and, uh, It's like Tiger Woods jacket. Well, yeah, seriously, Jim still so has it, you know, and deservedly, I mean, you know, uh, Fidelity PM's careers were made uh, during those five years, and so, so as so I will, I, st- I start to talk about well, you know, we have a great O and P, olefins and polyolefins franchise. I'd like to see our intermediates business be bigger. It's an important part of the portfolio and one that uh, should be over time a uh, very formidable brother to olefins and polyolefins. But we'll have to think through how we do that. And I could just see eye rolling. I could see people looking around. And one guy finally said to me, he goes, "Bobby, said, this." He said, we love the first part of your talk about how you got this company fixed and all the cost-cutting you did in Europe and how you, like, optimized every reactor and whatever. He said, i got to be honest, you lost me when you started talking about growth. Because he said, we don't really care about that. You're a capital return story. And we just want you to keep buying back shares and increase your dividend. That's it. And I looked at the guy at the time, and there were there was a room full of PMs in Boston. I looked at the guy, and I said, "If I did that for five five more years, I'm going to run the company into the ground. Because we're going to wake up, and we're going to see that everyone else has moved on, and we stood still."
1: But the but the the business environment also had changed too. Well, It was deteriorating. It was starting. So I took over at the peak. Before, right? right, right. So I
0: took over at the peak, essentially. You know, um, fifteen was our peak here in 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 earnings for the company, Um, and um, uh, ethylene margins, you know, crashed. And and so, so Peter, the challenge was we had we had some management change along the way as well. We weren't built for building, acquiring. All that all that capability was removed during the restructuring. As you can imagine, back in 2010, we didn't have the financial wherewithal to be building or buying anything. We were fixing ourselves. So anybody who wasn't in the fixing business was extra. And they were out, right? Now you have to go back and rebuild the capability. So one of the lessons that I've learned in these 10 years is that bankruptcies, they shake companies to their core. And it takes decades to get back to where you were. And the hardest part is rebuilding the capability that you lose
1: because the, peop- the, the people may not be exactly the right people for growth. But then, exactly. if you spend all your time on cost cutting, changing the culture and mentality is very hard. I'm still changing it. It's hard to do.
0: Five it. years later, I'm still. But that must I still have been, real it's been a real challenge. it very
1: cha- challenging, right? Because people are so used to, you know, a particular strategy. And
0: and, and I want to tell you something. At some point. The thing about cost cutting and about improving reliability of assets, you have there's no market dependency on that. You have a hundred percent control of that. In some ways, there's very little risk. It's hard work, but you're not taking a view on the market, right? It's self improvement, and so so the challenge was, to me, was how do we start to now evolve the culture where. Where most of the people in the company are independent in how they operate in their space, they don't need the CEO to come to every review at every plant to solve every problem. With <coughs> their self-governance, right? Um, and as the way and as you, right? I, he allowed, Yes, he did. He did. He, let, he allowed me to to make the changes in Europe and trusted me, and I knew that I couldn't let him down. So. Um, the other challenge is, when you have a, when, when you come through this kind of period, and you experience all of this success from the cost-cutting and all of that, now all of a sudden, everyone in the company wants to look at, what are we going to do? How are we going to grow? Right. And you can't take your bo- eye off of execution, because that's the thing that got you here, right? So, so as, I, as I stood in front of tens, t- 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, I constantly talk about the fact that most people in this company need to continue to focus on execution. Running assets well, safely, reliably, low cost, satisfy our customers' needs, have the salespeople focused on on the markets. And a few of us are going to work on, how do we give you more to do? How do we give you more assets, whether we build or buy? But if there are 13,000 people thinking about growth, we're going to take our aft ball that got us to where we were at that
1: time. So you were able to, what, continue to have excellence in terms of costs mm-hmm. and, and operating plan and so forth. But then you laid on top of that things that would allow you to grow. Yeah. And that's been very successful. And you haven't. You've been through things, but you've been very disciplined. They're, they're, I won't mention names, but obviously there are some deals that you passed on because you just said it wasn't, it didn't have all the pieces that you needed. Now you're faced, though, with a world that's got all sort of, I mean, if you make a list of all of the geopolitical challenges and so forth, you could be here for three hours. Now you're faced with an even different environment than when you first became CEO. So how are you, how are you navigating all these changes in turmoil? Because it's you know most of the CEOs I know say it's really tough to make decisions because there's so many things that are just not answered. Certain, Yeah.
0: So first, uh, the first thing, Peter, is that I, um, whenever I think through strategy or decisions for our company, I don't think about what's going to happen during my time as CEO. I think about how do we build a great company for the next 20, 30 years. I start with that because I think sometimes when one starts to think about their legacy or starts to think about I've got to do this or that, that's when they create unnecessary urgency and pressure. And, and make decisions perhaps they should. So I start with that. Because we're going to have a cyclical business, um, and, and it's important to have a long time horizon in mind, even though I'm not going to be here 30 years, you know. Um, oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, well, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, I'm sure the company will need somebody even better um, sooner than that. But the, the other thing that I think is really important is, um, is to separate sort of what's required on the execution side what's required on the strategy side. So in execution, I can tell you today at our company, uh, we're going through a a grassroots effort to think through what's the next crunch of improvement that we can make with existing assets. So I said to my team eight weeks ago, we sat together, and I said, uh, I I want all of us to sit together and, and imagine we've just acquired ourselves. What sort of synergies can we capture? Let's reimagine how we can run these assets. Perhaps it's going to be applying digital big data. It could be something as simple as how we Let's challenge the status quo. Let's challenge things that maybe we said, hey, look, that's what we were known for. Well, things have changed. But I think what it requires is a bit of humility, and I'll come back to my upbringing. If you think you're great, you'll never get better. And I think it's really important that you're always thinking about what else can we be doing. And it's a it's a, it's a cultural trait that I hope that I leave behind in this company is one where people are humble and they're hungry. And they're always thinking about how do we get better. On the strategy side, scenarios, I think are really important. I think you have to think through what are the kinds of things that could happen, plastic deselection, um could big oil companies build a lot more in our space? There's lots of these scenarios out there, right? And thinking through, how do we build a company that could be resilient in a range of scenarios? So back when we were, back when I joined the company and shale gas was starting to form, or, or to, to really come to light, I remember Jim and I talked about this, um, about debottlenecking and, and so on. I was still in the US when we did the early design on Laporte and Corpus and so on. And Jim and I debated one night, on a Friday night, um, about should we convert channel view to ethane cracking? And I said, Jim, I'm telling you, I would not convert anything. Retain flexibility. Because today it looks great, like, ethylene margins. And he, every time I spoke with him in 14, he would tell me, boy, Bob, if you were here, you'd be loving these ethylene <laughs> margins, you know. I said, Jim, they're not going to last, I'm telling you. That's the nature of our business, right? So I think it's how to think through a, a, a portfolio of assets that is, that's focused enough so that you know who you are, commodity versus specialty. But within that space, you, you have a collection that's resilient enough, whether it's business lines, beach top flexibility, geographic participation. How do you construct that so that you'll do well in a range of environments, as opposed to great in this environment and not so good in everything else?
1: But I also think you have to be able to step back far enough to take a big picture point of view. Because there are very few industries that haven't, over some period of time, gone through either a, a, a transformation mm-hmm. or a invasion of some technology. I mean, look at journalism, you know, newspapers, mm-hmm. and so forth. It's it's not just a cyclical problem, it's a structural problem because of the internet and so forth. So you, you've got to be able to not only look strategically and then Terms of execution, but you got to step way back and say, what could happen that would disrupt the world the way I know it? Exactly. Just like the guys who, you know, Netflix was originally was a male CD through DVDs around, and they were the dominant player, but the CEO was smart enough to understand that that business was going to go away. That the moment bandwidth in the internet allowed you to do streaming video, that business. So he said, I'd rather cannibalize myself. Than right. to let somebody else do it, and so he became the leader. Now he's they got another challenge, which is everybody getting the stream video. But they survived as opposed to Blockbuster, which disappeared. So every business somehow, and as you said, you mentioned the big oil, so well, you know, the oil business looks a lot less attractive than being in petrochemicals. So what happens if yeah. you suddenly they suddenly decide all to jump in the swimming pool, right? What well, and I, it could happen,
0: right? Yeah, and I think I think first of all disruption. It by its very nature, it's difficult to predict. Right, right. right. Most things that have happened that have been disruptive, we haven't seen them coming. Yeah. Right. So, so that's where I also think it's important to know your relative position in your business. Right. Right. So whether it's cost curves, it's your, your, where you benchmark on uh, in certain product areas. Knowing your relative position, what drives competitiveness, uh, <coughs> structural competitiveness, is really, really important. Um, and then imagining these scenarios and going really wide because the longer I think we're in these, this industry, the more myopic we become. You know, and that's our challenge is how do we really zoom out to think about what would happen. I went through one of these exercises with our board here in September where we really <coughs> stepped back and said, you know, and, and our bias frankly was what really bad could happen, not what really good could happen. And, and how are we, right? Um, and some of the things I mentioned about um, oil companies, trade, China, deselection plastics, a few other things that we talked about. There's lots of things out there to worry about today. Um, and, and, and I think it's part of it's, it's testing the resiliency of your model under different scenarios. And sometimes it could point to gaps where you could strengthen the resilience or you could add to the resilience.
1: But clearly you also want to build in a certain measure of flexibility, right? Exactly. Because you can't absolutely predict exactly where things exactly. you have to be in a position so that if it goes this way rather than that way, that you're just not, you know, wiped out that you really have a flexibility.
0: So so as we were as we were thinking about our large transaction that we were working on recently where we where we uh, walked away. Right. Um, the these transactions. These were the nameless <laughs> transactions. So these were all things that went through my mind, and I, I, I personally was, you know, two years of my life were in this deal. Every weekend, calls with, with advisors, and many countless trips on United Airlines to Brazil. You know, uh, night flight there, slept on the plane two nights, one night in the hotel, kind of thing. You know, um, had a lot of sweat equity in, in, in this transaction. Um, But, again, I went back to, is this the deal that will make this company great for the next 20, 30 years? As we got closer to having the design, I couldn't answer that question affirmatively. There were were too 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 many risks. And so the flexibility you refer to, I think the greatest flexibility that a company like ours can have in a time like this is financial flexibility. Is going into a downturn, going into kind of the amount of uncertainty that's in front of us. I think our financial flexibility will serve us well. When you combine that with good strategic thinking, <clears throat> scenario planning, alignment with shareholders, and great execution, I think this is a com- this is a company that has the potential to make the right decision when it appears.
1: You know, last thing I want to cover is uh, something that's more of something great. To you personally, a big issue, which is this whole thing about plastic waste, which has uh, become a serious issue, mm-hmm. and it's not just a minor thing, a, you know, you know, bad reputation, whatever. It could be fundamentally a major, a major economic uh, industry issue. Tell me what you see going on. I know you've taken a real leadership role in trying to, uh, you know, galvanize the industry to try to. Get ahead of it, you know. Get ahead of the
0: game. You, can you maybe share with us what you've been doing and what your thoughts are? I get to be a bit of an evangelist when I talk about this. I have to be careful, but um, uh, first of all, my career—if you think about thirty-three years or so that I've been working—I um, would say probably twenty-five years have been in plastics, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and uh, very few have been in petrochemicals, and ten of those were in polystyrene. So. <laughs> Uh, 1990 to 1999, manufacturing, product development into into sales. Those 10 years were more formative than I would have ever thought because they were degrees of just misery in terms of the business. We had one good month, it was July of 1995. <laughs> uh, in those 10 years, I'm telling you you remember it, which days it was? Days you, it was, it was I do. I do. It, was, it was euphoric. In that moment, I thought maybe there's a, there's a chance, you know. Uh, but then we got dragged down. So I, I tell you that because back then, back in uh, 1991, I think, or 92, <coughs> the McDonald's clamshell was banned, right, right. right? And they went to paper. We shut down three lines at, at, at our plant that I worked at at the time. Um, I think this is different. Yeah. This is far wider than the McDonald's clamshell. Um, every morning you wake up and you see something negative about plastics. You know, The straw through the turtle's nose, the seahorse carrying the Q-tip, um, the, the bag floating in the, in, in the water that was the National Geographic. Right. So last year um, uh, I was the chairman of the American Chemistry Council and I went to the June meeting. Um, before that, the Alliance to Plastic Waste was not even a thought in anyone's mind. Okay. The June of 18. And, uh, and I recall going to that meeting, I called, um, um, uh, I called John Verity at Exxon and I called uh, uh, Graham at and, and I said, I think we got to do something different here. So What if Martin at BSF, Fitterling at Dow, and the three of us, we put our heads together. We can't do this by committee. We can't try to go through executive committee and the board, let's set up a process. It's a fast-moving train. I think our colleagues in the industry will, will, um, will be okay with us trying to come up with a framework in a smaller group, but we'll include everyone at the right time. If we try to be inclusive and have 40 companies try to design this, it never it'll be four years later, and we'll still have nothing. So the five of us at that meeting um, went off to the side, we talked about this, and I said, and and we agreed, one of our principles was that it has to be cross-value chain. It can't just be the chemical industry trying to solve this problem. Because we've got to design recyclability in the packaging. We have to get the consumer brands, first of all, believing that plastics are the best way to package food. Plastics are not the problem. Plastic waste is the issue. And we have to differentiate between the two. And it's about how do we capture the waste before it leaks into the environment, right? So, um, so we went off on a recruiting mission. So imagine at that time, I, I was in the middle of the Brazilian deal, knee deep, elbow deep, maybe neck deep into it. We were working on this Chinese deal at the same time, and a bit of management change. Um, and I said, look, we're going to put our shoulder into this. And, and so I I, called, I started calling people, I called David at PNG. I said, David, you don't know who I am, uh, and I don't have a brand-name company to, to, to uh, um, that you might recognize me by. But let me tell you about what I'm trying to do. What we, what we're trying to do as an industry and you can't do it without you. I, I spoke with Jeff Bezos. I'm still working on him. Um, he hasn't joined the alliance yet. Uh, Suez, who was our partner, and and um, we started to gain a bit of momentum. I was the I was the chairman of the alliance for plastic waste while. We were trying to get the membership up. And then in October or November of 2018, um, I could see it was a bit self-evident that perhaps a chemical company CEO leading this may not look so good because it will be greenwashing. And so um, so somebody kind of lightly touched the idea with me about, well, what do you think if somebody else were to chair? It? I said, no problem. I said, I think David Taylor on to chair. So uh, I called David and I said, David, would you consider doing this? Because it's really important that you put the Procter and Gamble brand behind this. You know, half the time when I get on the plane and I, and I sit next to somebody and I tell them Lionel Bazell, they go, "Who? We don't know who you are." So it was important that this got traction. It wasn't about our company. It was not about me. And and we launched. An impact, right. And we launched in January of this year in London. We did a webcast launch. So as we sit here today, we have nearly 50 member companies, some are here. Um, we've, we've, we've now funded a few programs. One of the latest ones that we funded is a uh, is a project in Indonesia where we're, we're actually going to loan money to the local government to create a circularity. So we're going to create a blueprint for how best to collect the waste, how to segregate it, how to recycle it and then how to make new plastic out of it. And our hope is that once this blueprint is established and a model is effective, we can basically just cut and paste around, uh, around Asia. Um, you know, I, I
1: think a wonderful part of it is that the history of industries dealing with these kinds of issues is they tend to act too late. Yes. They wait till it becomes such a giant problem. And, you know, the things in, in, in life, it's a lot. Anything, yeah, disease. Or what you name it, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to deal with it early mm-hmm. on rather than wait until it becomes a seriously. And I think that's one of the things I really like about this, which is, you know, is that you're trying to get a, get ahead of the issues because, well, because because otherwise, you know, it gets to be harder problem solve. Right? And
0: I think we realized uh, for the first time in the chemical industry that we can't do this by ourselves. The, the other thing that, um, that that we're really working on as an alliance is that um, while the chemistry may be very obvious and, and the science of why plastics are the most effective material may be very obvious, we have to consider our audience and not put out 40 page white papers. I think we're fighting a sentimental battle as much as a scientific battle. And we mustn't forget that. I think, cause this next generation of, of millennials, or whatever the next generation after that is, not going to read a thirty-page paper on why plastics are more fuel-efficient than this and that. Uh, we need to show them images of children drinking out of uh, drinking water on a plastic pipe because it's cleaner and it's a way to distribute the pipe in, in Zambia or somewhere where you know there's a lot of poverty. So, so I, I think we we've, we've got to play a different game if we're going to win. And, and I think that's where uh, the Procter Gamble's of the world and Henkel and others will help us uh, think through that. And, and I think we're, uh, we're, we're on the cusp of really accelerating here. I think about this, 18 months ago, this concept didn't even exist, but in maybe one or two of our minds. And today, we've raised commitment for $100, uh, $100 million for, uh, sorry, $1 billion over five years, we've already, and our goal was 1.5 billion. We've already got commitment for a billion over five years. Yeah. So, um, so it's incredible the progress we've made. But I think it's a testament to collaboration. It's a testament to focus, getting things done. And and I hope it's not too late. You know, we're. Oh, we're I, I don't think so it is, I, but but I, but I and
1: and uh, but I think these are really important because you and, have and to have things that are they're not just image building. They're Substance. Substance. Exactly.
0: So so that's the other thing we've talked about is that we have to demonstrate real action. This is not just fancy posters and advertisements. Um, we want to create the solutions that then will be the raw material which we'll talk about, right? By the way, Bob,
1: you, you and I share some things in common, one of which were from immigrant families, mm-hmm. right? You know, my father didn't, you know, open up a donut shop, but he was an immigrant and, you know and and the, the same kind of dynamics but the other is the first work i did when i came out of business school uh, uh, working at bain was all Monsanto's plastic business right. abs s and polystyrene, polystyrene. Mm-hmm. and 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 and, uh, po- and i actually <clears throat> shut down their polyester business you know because at that time there was overcapacity because people finally figured out that Leisure suits actually weren't very comfortable, even though. It <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great because they said, "Well, it's great that the fact is that you never have to iron them, and yes. if you're traveling, you can wash them and hang them up in the in the in the in the bathroom." The, the bad news is, is you're walking around with the equipment of a hefty bag, trash bag, or on your very uncomfortable, and having to make the painful decisions about how to get out of the business. I, that, I, so I, 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 I so. I had the same maybe not quite the same feeling, about, but a similar yeah. feeling but
0: yeah. I have to tell you those uh, those ten years in polystyrene going through a couple of uh, combinations of companies and all of that, I think you're shaped by your experiences and, um, and I think it's built a certain grit, mm-hmm. resilience and also believing that you can actually get to the other side. Yeah. But the way you get to the other side is if you want to. And if you're really wanting to do it. So I think Sometimes you're faced with these enormous challenges and you think, like plastic waste perhaps, where you say, well, wow, how, how am I going to climb this? You don't start, you won't do it. Yeah. And so you just have to get, get after it. And, and that's what I've learned in the, in the 30 plus years that I've been working. And I tell you, in my professional life or in my personal life, very little has been handed to me. Yeah. And I don't mind that a bit. I you know, you, by the way,
1: way, were you good at making donuts, by the way? I wasn't.
0: I wasn't. I stumped at it. We would, uh, we, we, we would just, we just started, when I was there, we just order them in. Uh, right. so, so I wouldn't screw that part up. Yeah. By you the way, know what you're good at and you know what you're not good at. I would go over
1: the fireside chat of the guy who was the CEO of SAP, okay. who, you may have, he yeah. just stepped down recently. Yeah, I've met he, him. his he, he, family ran a deli. And he said he learned more things about serving customers than exactly. with his family. And somebody said, well, you know, SAP is a software company. <laughs> it's a deli. So what's similar, he said, you'd be amazed in a customer business how many things you could learn, you can transfer from making deli customers happy to making, you know, software customers happy. Well, Bob, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a real yeah. pleasure. Thank you. Now, the only question is,
0: did they leave anything for you to eat? Uh, I already ate so- right, um, and some of the things I mentioned about um, oil companies, trade, China, desalination, of plastics, a few other things that we talked about. There's lots of things out there to worry about today, um, and, and, and I think it's, part of it is testing the resili- resiliency of your model under different scenarios, and sometimes it could point to gaps where you could strengthen the resilience or you could add to the resilience.
1: But clearly, you also want to build in a certain measure of flexibility, right? Exactly. Because you can't absolutely predict exactly where things. Exactly. You have to be in a position so that if it goes this way rather than that way, that you're just not, you know, wiped out. That you really have flexibility. So,
0: so as we were as we were thinking about our large transaction that we were working on recently, where we where we uh, walked away. Right. Um, that name these, transactions. these were the nameless <laughs> transactions. So these were all things that went through my mind and I I I personally was you know, two years of my life were in this deal. Every weekend, calls with, with advisors and many countless trips on United Airlines to Brazil. You know, uh night flight there, slept on the plane two nights, one night in the hotel kind of thing, you know. Um, had a lot of sweat equity in in, in this transaction. Um, but, again, I went back to, is this the deal that will make this company great for the next 20, 30 years? As we got closer to having to decide, I couldn't answer that question a yeah. further there, there were too, too many security risks, security. and so the flexibility you refer to, yeah. I think the greatest flexibility that a company like ours can have in a time like this is financial flexibility. Is going into a downturn, going into the kind of the amount of uncertainty that's in front of us. I think our financial flexibility will serve us well. When you combine that with good strategic thinking, <clears throat> scenario planning, alignment with shareholders, and great execution, I think this is a com- this is a company that has the potential to make the right decision when it appears.
1: You know, last thing I want to cover is uh, something that's more of something of great you personally a big issue which is this whole thing about plastic waste which is uh, become a serious issue mm-hmm. and it's not just a minor thing and you know you know bad reputation whatever it could be fundamentally a major a major economic industry issue tell me what you see going on what I know you've taken a real leadership role in trying to uh, you know galvanize the industry to try to Get ahead of the you know get ahead of the game. You, can you maybe share with us what you've been doing and what your
0: thoughts are? I get to be a bit of an evangelist when I talk about this. So I have to be careful, but um, uh, first of all, my career—if you think about thirty-three years or so that I've been working—I um, would say probably twenty-five years have been in plastics. You know, um, and, and uh, very few have been in petrochemicals, and ten of those were in polystyrene. So. <laughs> Uh, 1990 to 1999, manufacturing, product development, into into sales, those 10 years were more formative than I would have ever thought because they were degrees of just misery in terms of the business. We had one good month, it was July of 1995. Uh, in those 10 years, I'm telling you. Do you, you remember which days it was? Days you, it and I do, I do. It was, it was euphoric. In that moment I thought maybe there's a, there's a chance, you know. Uh, but then we got dragged down. So I, I tell you that because back then, back in uh, 1991, I think, or 92, <coughs> the McDonald's clamshell was banned, right, right? right? And they went to paper. We shut down three lines at, at, at our plant that I worked at at the time. Um, I think this is different. Yeah. This is far wider than the McDonald's clamshell. Um, every morning you wake up and you see something negative about plastics. You know, The straw through the turtle's nose, the seahorse carrying the Q-tip, um, the, the bag floating in the, in, in the water that was the National Geographic. Right. So last year, um, uh, I was the chairman of the American Chemistry Council and I went to the June meeting. Um, before that, the Elias Van Plastic Waste was not even a thought in anyone's mind. Okay? The June of 18. And, uh, and I recall going to that meeting, I called, um, um, uh, I called John Verity at Exxon, and I called uh, uh, Graham at Ship. And I said, I think we've got to do something different here. So, what if Martin at BSF, Fitterling at Dow, and the three of us we put our heads together. We can't do this by committee. We can't try to go through executive committee and the board, let's set up a process. It's a fast moving train. I think our colleagues in the industry will, will, um, will be okay with us trying to come up with a framework in a smaller group, but we'll include everyone at the right time. If we try to be inclusive and have 40 companies try to design this, it never it'll be four years later and we'll still have nothing. So the five of us at that meeting um, went off to the side, we talked about this, and I said, and and we agreed one of our principles was that it has to be cross-value chain. It can't just be the chemical industry trying to solve this problem, because we've got to design recyclability and the packaging. We have to get the consumer brands, first of all, believing that plastics are the best way to package food. Plastics are not the problem. Plastic waste is the issue, and we have to differentiate between the two. And it's about how do we capture the waste before it leaks into the environment, right? So, um, so we went off on a recruiting mission. So imagine at that time, I, I was in the middle of the Brazilian deal, knee deep, elbow deep, maybe neck deep into it. We were working on this Chinese deal at the same time. And A bit of management change, um, and. I said, "Look, we're going to put our shoulder into this," and and so I, I called. I started calling people. I called David at PNG. I said, "David, you don't know who I am, uh, and I don't have a brand name company to to, to uh, um, that you might recognize me by. But let me tell you about what I'm trying to do. What well, we what we're trying to do as an industry we can't do it without you." I, I spoke with Jeff Bezos. Uh, I'm still working on him. Um, he hasn't joined the alliance yet. Uh, Sue "Who was our partner?" And, and um, we started to gain a bit of momentum. I was the I was the chairman of the Alliance for Plastic Waste while we were trying to get the membership up. And then in October or November of 2018, um, I could see it was a bit self-evident that perhaps a chemical company CEO leading this may not look so good because it will be greenwashing. And so um, so somebody kind of lightly touched the idea with me about well, what do you think if somebody else were to chair it? I said. No problem. I said I think David Taylor ought to chair it. So uh, I called David and I said, David, would you consider doing this? Because it's really important that you put the Procter and Gamble brand behind this. You know, half the time when I get on the plane and I, and I sit next to somebody and I tell them, Lionel Bazell," they go, "Who?" We don't know who you are. So it was important that this got traction. It wasn't about our company. It was not about me. And and we launched. And we launched in January. Uh, of uh, this year in London, we did a webcast launch. So as we sit here today, we have nearly fifty member companies. Some are here. Um, we've, uh, we've 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 uh, now funded a few programs. Uh, one of the latest ones that we funded is a uh, is a project in Indonesia, where we're we're actually going to loan money to the local government to create a circularity. So we're going to create a blueprint for how best to collect the waste, how to segregate it, how to recycle it, and then how to make new plastic out of it. And our hope is that once this blueprint is established and a model is effective, we can basically just cut and paste around, uh, around Asia. Um, you know, I,
1: I think a wonderful part of it is that the history of industries dealing with these kinds of issues is they tend to act too late. Yes. They wait till it becomes such a giant problem. And you know, the things in, in, in life, it's a lot, anything, yeah, disease, or what, you name it, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to deal with it early mm-hmm. on rather than wait till it becomes a serious thing. And I think that's one of the things I really like about this, which is you know, is that you're trying to get, a, get ahead of the issues because, well, because, because otherwise you know, it gets to be harder to problem solve, right? And
0: I think we realized uh, for the first time in the chemical industry that we can't do this by ourselves. The, the other thing that, um, that that we're really working on as an alliance is that um, while the chemistry may be very obvious and, and the science of why plastics are the most effective material may be very obvious, we have to consider our audience and not put out 40-page white papers. I think we're fighting a sentimental battle as much as a scientific battle, and we mustn't forget that, I think because this next generation of, of millennials or whatever the next generation after that is not going to read a 30 page paper on why plastics are more fuel efficient than this and that, uh, we need to show them images of children drinking out of uh, drinking water on a plastic pipe because it 's cleaner and it 's a way to distribute the pipe in the. Pilot. In Zambia or somewhere where you know there's a lot of poverty. So, so I, I, I think we've we've got to play a different game if we're going to win. And, and I think that's where uh, the Procter Gamble's of the world and Henkel and others will help us uh, think through that. And and I think we're, uh, we're we're on the cusp of really accelerating here. I think about this: 18 months ago, this concept didn't even exist, but in maybe one or two of our minds. And today we've raised commitment for 100 uh, $100 million dollars for sorry one billion dollars over five years we've already and our goal was 1.5 billion we've already got commitment for a billion over five years so um so it's incredible the progress we've made but i think it's a testament to collaboration it's a testament to focus getting things done and and i hope it's not too late you know,
1: we're, oh, we're, I, I don't think so it is, I, is, but but I, but I and, and, uh, but I think these are really important because you and, have to have things that are they're not just image building, they're substantive, exactly.
0: So so that's the other thing we've talked about is that we have to demonstrate real action. This is not just fancy posters and advertisements. Uh, we want to create the solutions that then will be the raw material, which we'll talk about. Right. By the way, Bob. You you and I
1: share some things in common. One of which were from immigrant families. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, my father didn't you know open up a donut shop, but he was an immigrant, and you know, and, and the, the same kind of dynamics. But the other is the first work I did when I came out of business school, uh, uh, working in Bain was all Monsanto's plastic business, right. ABS, SAN, polystyrene, polystyrene mm-hmm. and 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 and. and uh, po- and I actually <coughs> shut down their polyester business, you know, because at that time there was overcapacity because people finally figured out that the leisure suits actually weren't very comfortable, even <laughs> though... It, you know, well, it was great, because they said, well, it's great that the fact is that you never have to iron them, and if you're traveling, you can wash them and hang them up in the, in the, in the, in the bath. The bad, the bad news is, is you're walking around with the equipment of a hefty bag, a trash bag, or right. you're know, <laughs> very uncomfortable and having to make the painful decisions about how to get out of the business. And I I, I, so I had I, I, so I the same, maybe not quite the same feeling about similar, it, but a similar yeah. feeling about it. Yeah.
0: But I have to tell you, those uh, those 10 years in public styling, going through a couple of uh, combinations of companies and all of that, I think you're shaped by your experiences. And, um, and I think it's built a certain grit and resilience and also believing that you can actually get to the other side. But the way you get to the other side is if you want to. And if you're really wanting to do it. So I think sometimes you're faced with these enormous challenges and you think, like plastic waste perhaps, where you say, well, wow, how, how am I going to climb this? You don't start, you won't do it. And so you just have to get, get after it. And, and that's what I've learned in the 30-plus in the years that I've been working. And I tell you, in my professional life or in my personal life, very little has been handed to me. Yeah. And I don't mind that a bit. Yeah, right. I mean, by what, the
1: way, were you good at making donuts, by the way? I wasn't.
0: I wasn't. <laughs> I stunk at it. We would, uh, we, we, we would just, we started, but when I was there, we just order them in. Right? <laughs> so, uh, so I wouldn't screw that part up. Yeah. You by the way, know what you're good at, and you know what you're not good at. <laughs>
1: I would go over the fireside chat of the guy who was the CEO of SAP, yeah. who you who you may have, he just stepped down recently, yeah, I've met he, he, he his family ran a deli, mm-hmm. and he said he learned more things about serving customers than exactly. with his family. And somebody said, well, you know, SAP is a software company, it's a deli, so what's similar? He said, you'd be amazed yeah. in a customer business how many things you could learn, you can transfer from making deli customers happy to making
0: the you know, software customers have. It. Well, Bob, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a real yeah. pleasure. Thank you.